So as I mentioned, today we want to take some time to uh, just share a few thoughts about why communion is so important to us and so central to who we are as a church. And so inside of Connect News, you've got your teaching notes again. We've started them up again for the year. So if you want to jot things down as we go through today's message, uh, then please feel free to be able to do that. And I want to begin today's message by asking you to think of a time where you have had a special meal That could be with family, that could be with friends, it could be with neighbours, some people that you're close to. Uh, But just think of a time in the last little while where you have had a special meal with some people. Only about a month ago, we, many of us, gathered around tables to be able to celebrate Christmas with some people that were close to us. So it might be Christmas, it might be a special event that you have had, a birthday, a wedding, a celebration of some kind. Uh, for us, when we were down at Middleton, we went to one of our favourite restaurants. So we always loved it. There are two restaurants that we go whenever we're down at Middleton, Loco Mexican and Nino's Italian. And so we always go to those two restaurants when we're down there. And so it was great for us to be able to sit around the table again and to be able to do that. And there's something really amazing that happens when we gather together with people who are special to us and share a meal. There's something amazing that just begins to open up as we have conversations, as we recognise that it's a place where we belong, as we talk about the things that are going on for us and what's happening in and around us. There's something really, really significant that seems to happen when we sit around the table and where we share a meal together. And on the night before the events that we reflect on and that we remember on what we now call Good Friday, Jesus got together with his closest friends, with his disciples, to be able to share a special meal as well. And I want you to imagine yourself in this scene. Imagine yourself as one of the disciples as we re-enter into this scene of Jesus gathering around the table with his friends. Think back over what's happened over this past week on Sunday. Jesus has entered into Jerusalem and it's been the most amazing scene that you have ever seen. All of these people just coming out and saying how amazing Jesus is and claiming Jesus as their king and saying we're going to follow you Jesus and we think you're really, really awesome and throwing palm branches down on the ground and really celebrating Jesus as he enters into Jerusalem. The Passover is about to happen, so you're about to celebrate the Passover feast, which is this really, really significant moment in the life of the Israelite people where each year they would take some time to be able to reflect back on the events that happened in the Exodus. So with Moses, when God used Moses to be able to set the Israelites free from slavery in Egypt, every year the Israelites would take some time to have a special meal to be able to re-enter into those events and remind themselves about how amazing it is that God had set them free. And so you know that you're about to celebrate this really amazing meal once again. And so there's this real incredible vibe that's going on as the city has kind of been coming alive and you get ready for this Passover festival. There's thousands and thousands of people that are in the city because of Passover. And yet at the same time, you know that something's brewing. Jesus has been talking a lot recently about what's going to happen after he's not around anymore. Jesus has been talking a lot about his death. And so you kind of feel this weird tension, this reality of this celebration and this sense of expectation that Jesus is up to something, and yet these words that Jesus has been sharing about how he's not going to be around for very much longer. It's in the context of that that you walk into the upper room and that you sit down, more accurately, you would have lay down, reclined at the table in preparation for this Passover meal. And it's in the context of that that Jesus introduces us to this practice that we now call communion. So Matthew chapter 26, verse 20. 
And again, if it's helpful, close your eyes and imagine this thing. When it was evening, Jesus sat down at the table with the twelve. While they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. Greatly distressed, each one asked in turn, am I the one, Lord? He replied, one of you who has just eaten from this bowl with me will betray me. For the Son of Man must die, as the scriptures declared long ago. But how terrible it will be for the one who betrays him. It would be far better for that man if he had never been born. Judas, the one who would betray him, also asked, Rabbi, am I the one? And Jesus told him, you have said it. Now just pause there for a minute. And again, think about the reality of what's going on as you sit around this table. Imagine this reality of Jesus saying, one of you that's sitting here is going to betray me. Imagine your sense of horror and you're, oh, it's not me, is it? Surely it's not me. And you start looking around the table. It can't be any of these people. We've journeyed together for nearly three years. We know each other so well. Surely none of us are going to do this. There must be something that's wrong here. And yet ultimately, Jesus says, Judas is the one who's going to do it. Imagine your sense of shock and horror at that reality, that Judas, this guy who you know so well, is going to betray Jesus. But also recognise, and we talked about this a few weeks ago before I went away, about how radical it is that Jesus knows this and yet Judas is still welcome at the table. We talked about how amazing it is that Jesus would choose to wash Judas's feet. But even more amazing that Jesus doesn't just kick Judas out and say, you're going to betray me, you can't sit here and eat this meal with us. Like, get out, go, we don't want you here. It's amazingly radical and a reminder that Jesus invites everyone to the table, regardless of their background, regardless of the things that they've done, regardless of the things that they're doing, everyone's invited to sit at the table with Jesus. Verse 26, as they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, take this and eat it for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, each of you drink from it, for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It's poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Mark my words, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And so here in the midst of everything that's going on, Jesus introduces this idea that when they sit around and have a meal, to take the bread that would have been on the table and to take the wine that also would have been on the table and to use them as symbols to remind them of him. The bread to remind them of his body, the wine to remind them of his blood. To be reminded that Jesus came ultimately to set all of us free, to bring a new covenant, a new promise, a new relationship with God, to say you are now part of God's family and that's done, it's sealed, it's finished. And all of our sin, all of our selfishness, all the mistakes that we make, all the stuff that we do that can put barriers up between us and God, all of that has been dealt with. And Jesus said, whenever you get together and have a meal, take some time to reflect, to remember me and to remember what it is that I've done for you. And so this became a core practice right from the earliest days as the church began. We've talked before about a lot of the snapshots that we read in Acts of the early church, and regularly what we see is that they would gather together in people's homes. They would come together and they would have a shared meal, and as a part of that shared meal, they would take bread, 
they would take wine and they would participate in communion together. They would take some time to pray together. They would take some time to learn together and to unpack some of Jesus' words and the things that Jesus had taught them. And then they would look for ways to be able to serve the community around them. And so Paul, who was one of the key leaders of the early church, then went and planted all of these churches in cities all around Europe. All of these people who had the opportunity to be able to also gather together in people's homes to be able to share meals together and to be able to participate in communion together. And Paul then writes letters to all of these churches and the leaders who are in these churches that he's planted, which makes up most of what we've got in the New Testament. And in particular, there was a church that was planted in a city called Corinth, which Paul wrote two letters to that we've got, First and Second Corinthians. And so in those letters, Paul addresses a lot of challenges that that church in particular faced because Corinth was this massive big city and the church in Corinth reflect just how multicultural it was and people who were coming from all of these different backgrounds, all of these different belief systems and trying to work together to become the church. And as a part of writing to the church in Corinth, Paul specifically gives us some insight into some of the realities about what communion is supposed to be and what it means for us to celebrate it. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 20, Paul writes this. When you meet together, you're not really interested in the Lord's Supper. For some of you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing it with others. As a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. What, don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? Or do you really want to disgrace God's church and shame the poor? What am I supposed to say? Do you want me to praise you? Well, I I certainly will not praise you for this. Sometimes we wish that Paul had just been a little more clear about how he felt about certain situations. He says very, very clearly, what is going on with you guys? Now, again, remind ourselves of the context into which Paul is writing. The church would gather together for these shared meals. Now, in some of the earliest writings that we've got about the church, we know that they were called love feasts. That They would come together for a love feast where they would bring food, similar to when we would do a shared meal or a potluck, and they would bring food to be able to share with each other. And there was this expectation that if you were pretty well off, that you would bring food to be able to help those who weren't very well off because there were a number of people who had become a part of the church who didn't have anything. And so that was the idea, was that they would come together, they would eat together, there'd be this sense of unity and this sense of togetherness. But instead of people bringing some food to share, it had turned into more of a bring your own food to be able to eat. We can kind of imagine that people were at home and they were cooking and they were like, you know what, this pizza actually looks really great and I think I'm just going to keep it for myself. I don't want to share it with anyone else because it's too delicious. And this pasta dish that I've put together... It actually is really, really great and I need to have some leftovers for lunch this week so I'm just going to keep it for myself and for my family and not share it with anyone else. And so imagine the dynamics that are happening where you have some people who've got lots who are sitting down and eating their food and enjoying themselves and you've got these other people who are sitting in the room who have nothing, who are sitting there by themselves, hungry, watching other people eat. As well as that, Paul specifically names that some people are getting drunk as a part of these gatherings as well. And so just imagine for a moment, we used to have our Sunday lunches, we used to have our Wednesday night shared dinners, and at some point we hope that that's something that we'll be able to do again. But imagine that instead of those feeling like they used to, 
that when we would come along, some of us would just keep our food to ourselves and we would eat our own food and a bunch of other people, some of you, would be sitting there by yourselves with nothing to be able to eat. Imagine how you would feel. And imagine that there's a group of people who are also getting drunk as a part of this. And the reality of how that might feel in the midst of this nice meal that we're supposed to be having where we're supposed to share together. Think about how challenging that would be for us as a church family to work through that. That's the dynamics in which Paul is writing to the Corinthians to say, when you get together for these meals, you're kind of missing the mark a little bit. And because of that, he then writes these words that are so familiar to us because in lots and lots of churches, they use these words every time that they have communion. For us, they sometimes get read out as well. But that's the context in which Paul writes these words. Verse 23, For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. And so Paul uses these words to be able to remind the church this is what communion is supposed to be about. It is about remembering an event that was grounded in history on the night when Jesus was betrayed. He took bread, he took wine. These were things that actually happened. The bread is this symbol that reminds us of Jesus' body, that Jesus came to live a human life, to be able to help us to understand what God's love looks like with human flesh on it. But also reminds us that Jesus gave everything that he had into the mission that God had for him. The wine is this symbol of Jesus' blood that was poured out. And that means a couple of things. When we talk about our blood, we talk about our life force. Our blood is the thing that keeps us alive. And so Jesus shedding his blood is Jesus literally shedding his life for us so that we can have his life. But he does that as a final sacrifice to form this new covenant, this new relationship between us and God, this agreement that's now in place to say, you are a part of God's family because of the sacrifice that I have made. And so Paul says, when you eat the bread, when you drink the wine, remember, take some time to reflect on Jesus, to remember his life, to remember his teaching. Yes, to remember his death and his sacrifice, but also to remember his resurrection. And Paul specifically says that we do this to proclaim Jesus. When we take the bread, when we take the juice, when we gather around the communion table, it's an opportunity to remind ourselves and anyone who's listening, this is the centre of who we are. This is what is so crucial and important to us as people who follow Jesus. And so that has been the purpose and the focus of communion for the last 2,000 years in all of the different ways that it's been celebrated and remembered around the world. Now, before we start to wrap up, I want to just briefly address the next couple of verses that come because these verses have sometimes been used to exclude people from taking communion or have made us feel sometimes like, oh, I don't know whether I'm really worthy of being able to have communion. So Paul writes these words. 
Anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. This is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honouring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgement upon yourself. Now, we want to remind ourselves of the context in which Paul is writing these words. Remember, the love feast where people are coming together, they're supposed to be sharing together, they're not, there's all of these things that are going on. And so Paul wants to challenge that, to say in the midst of what's going on, do you think that you're actually taking communion the way that Jesus wanted you to do it? Do you think with the behaviour that you're displaying that you're honouring Jesus? That you're taking this bread and this juice in a way that's worthy of all that Jesus has done for you? Are you proclaiming Jesus in the way that you're not just having bread and juice, but in everything that's happening around that? And so this is really, really important because sometimes these verses have been used to say, so you'd better measure up if you want to be able to have communion. And at different seasons in the life of the church, that's been used in some ways that has been very, very exclusive. But other times, and I've heard messages about this at different times, people have said, so you'd better make sure that you've got yourself right before you take communion. You better make sure that you've asked for forgiveness for all the things that you've done wrong. Or if you've got any issues with someone else, you better make sure you go and sort them out before you take communion. That's not at all what Paul was trying to say here. This is not about saying, are you worthy enough? Are you perfect enough to be able to deserve communion? Because the answer to that is, no one is. No one is perfect enough or worthy enough of it because Jesus does it for us freely and openly. The challenge for us is to say, are you in the way that you're acting, in the way that you're living, in the things that you're doing, individually but as a community as well, reflecting how amazing it is that Jesus has done all of these things for you? And so as we take communion, we do want to take some time to be able to pause and reflect. We don't do that in a way to say, oh, I wonder if I've done enough to be able to be worthy to come and have communion today. We do that in a way to say, am I being reminded? Am I feeling encouraged and inspired and challenged about what it means to follow Jesus? It's not about whether we've fully addressed everything in our lives, about whether we've jumped through the right hoops. It's just about saying, are you, as you take communion, thinking about what it means to follow Jesus authentically? And so generation after generation after generation of the church has done what we're about to do, gathered around the table in all sorts of different ways, in all sorts of different languages, in all sorts of different cultural contexts and in all sorts of different ways of being able to practice that. But at the end of the day, it's always been about the same thing, coming back and centering ourselves on Jesus. And for us at Brooklyn Park, particularly because we're a part of the Churches of Christ movement, this is core to who we are. This is one of our distinctives, that every single week we stop and we gather at the table. We take the time to be able to eat and drink and remember, to remind ourselves of who Jesus is and to remind ourselves of everything that Jesus has done for us. And it's really important that as we begin a new year that we recognise this is something very significant because the danger in the reality that we do it every week is that it can just become a ritual that we do because that's what we do. And we just take communion week in and week out because that's one of the things that we do. But it's supposed to be so much more profound than that. 
It is supposed to be this opportunity for us to stop, to pause, to reflect, regardless of what's going on in our lives, and to be able to be reminded again about who Jesus is, what Jesus has done for us, and what it means to be able to follow him. It's a reminder that this is an open table, that Jesus invites anyone to be able to come to the table and to share in this meal with us. And for us at Brooklyn Park, we've made the decision to put communion at the end of the service in a very intentional way because we want to say this is the focal point of everything that we do. When we gather together, everything drives us to the table. And the songs that we sing, the prayers that we pray, the things that we unpack from the different things that we read together, all of that ultimately drives us to the table where we take the opportunity to stop, to reflect and to say, Jesus, what is it that you want to say to me today? And what's so staggering is the reality that every week there's something new for us to reflect on as we gather around the table. That far from this being something that's really, really simple, it's something that's incredibly profound. The reality that it is the reminder of a feast. This reminds us when we come together, it should be a time of celebration. It should be a time that we're excited about, that we're happy to be able to gather around the table, just like if we had an amazing shared feast together. It's also the reminder of this foretaste of what we're going to experience, that when we cross from this life into the next, there will be this amazing feast that we'll get to participate in with all of our extended spiritual family. This is a foretaste of us remembering that it's not just about us, We share this meal with everyone else around the world and throughout history who has also taken the time to be able to eat the bread and drink the juice. It is an opportunity for us to reflect on the sacrifice that Jesus made for us, but to do that in a way that reminds us of just how profound it is that Jesus loves us enough to do everything for us to be able to be a part of his family. It is an opportunity for us to reflect on the teaching of Jesus and the life of Jesus, to be able to remember that Jesus didn't just come and teach us a whole bunch of stuff. Jesus came and lived all of this out. And so he gives us a model to be able to follow in our lives. It's an opportunity for us to recommit ourselves to following Jesus and saying, I want to live like you. These things that we've been reflecting on today, I want to take those away and live them out throughout this week. And it's an opportunity to ask Jesus for the strength to be able to do that. One of the things that we often talk about around the communion table is that it is this tangible expression of saying, Jesus, I want more of you in my life. As I eat the bread, as I drink the juice, I want more of you in my life, fueling me to be able to live the way that you want me to be able to live. So we're going to take communion in a couple of moments. But before we do that, I want to give you an opportunity just to be able to pause and reflect. And to ask yourself this question, what does communion mean for me? What does communion mean for me? As we begin a new year, what is the purpose of us gathering around the table each week? What does that actually mean for you? What does it mean to prioritise that as something that is more than just a weekly ritual, something that we just go through the motions of week in and week out? What does it look like to be something that you look forward to that you have a sense of anticipation about gathering around the table? What does it mean to be able to use it as an opportunity to pause and reflect regardless of what's going on in your life? What does it mean to use this as an opportunity to be inspired and encouraged and challenged again about what it means to follow Jesus?
I'm going to give you a couple of moments. You can jot some notes down. You can chat with the person next to you or just reflect silently. But what does communion mean for you? And as we begin this new year, what does it look like to recommit to the centrality of this, the centrality of Jesus in your life and in our life as a church family together? So take some time to reflect and then we'll transition across to the table.